الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى والصلاه والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم من المؤمنين رجال صدقوا ما عاهدوا الله عليه فمنهم من قضى نحبه ومنهم من ينتظر وما بدلوا تبديلا صدق الله العظيم مؤسسه العلماء الكرام برادرز اند سيدرز ذس از ذا سيستم ذات الله تعالى هاز كرييتد ان الدنيا ذات الله تعالى سنت انسان فور ذا جايدنس اوف انسان ون اوف ذا اوبجيكشنز that the mushrikeen of makkah had that why was a human being sent as a messenger to us why wasn't some angel sent so in many places in the quran sharif allah taala clarifies this or re- rejects this contention of theirs that it should have been a angel that should come down that is insan that insan sees he loves with he interacts with and he takes guidance from if it was an angel then people would have this baseless objection then to it would be baseless but nevertheless something for them to say that after all we are human beings these are angels how are we going to follow them allah taala sent insan and then the last and final messenger rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he had a very short time in dunya after nubuwwat 23 years <coughs> but his mission was for til qiyamah and allah tbaraka wa taala kept this mission of rasulullah sallallahu alive after him through the sahaba ikram and after rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam they are the fountain head of this guidance they took it directly from rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and then they moved on with it and passed it on from then the tabi'in took it so these are our sources this is where we have received this deen from rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam whatever he taught the sahaba ikram absorbed that they preserved it they preserved it in their lives in their amal and then they moved it on passed it on to the tabi'in and this came down through the ages So throughout the ages this is how this deen has come from heart to heart and it has always been that by following the personalities of deen that people have progressed in deen and taking the inspiration from their lives taking the direction and guidance from them therefore it is extremely important for us to know who the personalities were through who this deen came to us the same deen that rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam passed on the same deen that he gave to the sahaba and which they took and passed on to the tabi'in and the same deen then which the tabi'in passed on among them the muhaddisin the mufassirin that came thereafter the fuqaha ikram also what great service they rendered to deen and through all the ages all the great personalities of deen in every field and every department and throughout the world not confined to any one part of the world but then coming closer to what we are going to be discussing 
that in the last two centuries, the preservation of deen to the extent that it happened on an organized level and in such a wide extent, as it has happened from what sprang forth from a little place called Deoban in India, that is perhaps hard to match anywhere in this last two centuries. That if we trace from the effort of deen that started off from the establishment of the Dalum of Deoban, then the thousands, in fact hundreds of thousands of madaris throughout the world, madaris and makatib throughout the world, hundreds of thousands is, just to make it a little bit more believable and cautious, little conservative, otherwise it would have passed the million mark easily. The hundreds of thousands of madaris and makatib and the effort of Dawat and Tabligh, which started off also as a, from the same fountainhead, which has reached every nook and corner of the world, and the work of Islah and Tazkiyah through the Mashayikh, which has reached all the four corners of the world also, and the millions of people's lives that were touched by all these various khidmat of deen, to the extent that this has happened from this little place called Deoban in India, this is hard to match on this scale anywhere else. Otherwise, in various capacities throughout the world, the servants of Allah Ta'ala have been serving deen, the ulama-i kiram from different parts of the world, different nationalities, whether it was from Africa, whether it was in the Arab lands, or wherever it might have been, have been doing the great share of it in passing on deen to the ummah of Rasulullah So nevertheless, this is something that we have to keep looking back towards, all the personalities of deen. And to the extent that we will do this, we will be able to maintain that same spirit of deen, that same purity of deen. Because deen is what has come to us from Rasulullah through these avenues. Nevertheless, coming to the personality that we wish to discuss, one of the very great personalities that Allah Ta'ala blessed tremendously and through whose efforts and sacrifices great amount of khair came was the personality of Hazrat Ma Qasim Nanotwi Rahmatullahi. There's volumes written about him and obviously in the little time that we have how much can really be covered. But nevertheless, we will just take some little glimpses into some aspects of his life which inshallah will give us some insight on what this personality was all about, who was he. And at the same time inshallah gives us some kind of inspiration to also follow in these footsteps. Listening to some discussion of a personality of some great pious person is not just for the sake of listening to something and well, fine it was interesting and mashallah we heard some fascinating things sometimes about some person and that's where it all ends off and finishes off. That is not the object. The object is that we need to take some direction from this and try and emulate the example that they set. Try and follow in their footsteps. After all, the purpose of all these gatherings, the efforts of deen, these discussions that take place, that we have to come on amal as well. Nevertheless, to just start off somewhere from his early life, not going to go into every detail, 
and this is not meant to be a kind of historical account in detail, it's just glimpses into various aspects of his life. He was born in 1248 Hijri in this little town of Nanota in India and after his primary education etc. Later he came to study at that time which was known as the Arabic College in Delhi. At that time there was no Darulam Deoban yet. After all he was to be later on become the founder of Darulam Deoban. There were no Madaris in India apart from these institutions which the government, the British government at that time was over all these things. But to some extent some of these things were being preserved. So there was this, what was known as the Arabic College in Delhi and nevertheless there were some very great ulama that were based there who had come purely just to impart the deen, impart the knowledge of deen. One very great personality and alim that was based there, Mawlana Mamluk Ali sahab rahmatullah alayhi. So Mawlana Qasim Nanuti rahmatullah alayhi is a young boy, he came and he enrolled in this Arabic college of Delhi and for five years he studied here under Mawlana Mamluk Ali sahab rahmatullah alayhi. Seeing his expertise, how sharp he was, how intelligent he was and the how quickly he would grasp very very difficult subject matter he started giving him extra lessons calling him home and teaching him more kitabs etc it was in the same time that Hazrat Maha Rashid Ahmad Gangoi the other great spiritual personality of Dalum Deoban who was the co-founder of this great institution he came to study in Delhi as well at that same time and that was the start of this association and this friendship between these two great personalities which lasted right up to the time Hazrat Mawanaanuti Rahmatullahi passed away. So in any case, both of them, Shri Ahmad Gangoi came a little later but he caught up with him and they both were studying together and they would revise their lessons, sit down together and revise their lessons. Often they would be very very intricate subject matter in terms of mantiq and falsafa, logic, philosophy, they would be discussing it and they would go into such detailed sort of academic debates about it that people, students would start gathering around them to hear and let alone students, the ustads of the madrasa would gather around them and they would be kept and totally absorbed in this discussion and in the early student days they were already so deeply engrossed in their ilm and things which difficult to grasp those books of logic and philosophy he would read it, explain it explain it like a Hafiz is reciting his door, Hafiz who knows his door very well, he doesn't falter anywhere without any hesitation things which people have a battle looking inside and reading properly he would be reading without any hesitation, explaining and going on, like he's just reading something, some sort of Fatiha and he's just going on any case, this is not the detail that we wish to get more into. Five years he studied here. It was now the time for the final exams for him to graduate. And when the time of the exams came, this is the lesson, or one of the, one of the important lessons in this incident. The time of the exams came, now he was a super brilliant student. And he used to far outshine everybody. When the time of the exams came, he didn't pitch up for the examination. The morning of the exams, exams are being written and he's not there. Now, 
this became a major issue, they couldn't find him anywhere, what happened? And then he just disappeared for the exams. Everything was done. In that time, a person having graduated from these institutions, this was the gateway for him now to, so to say, fly in dunya. Because that certificate will open big, big doors for him. Where the wealth of dunya also will just fall at his feet. On the other hand, the authorities of the institute, the principal, the teachers, they were very, very upset, very grieved as well, because they were waiting for something else. They knew this is such a super brilliant student, when his results are going to come now, this was like a kind of board exam that would be written. They knew that they are going to, this institution is going to shine in the whole of India. So they were looking for their own moment of glory out of this. Everybody is trying to get their own pound of flesh. But he wasn't to be found. Any case later when he came, everybody was very grieved. It was too late now. The exams were written. So basically, he f- no exams, so no graduation. So everybody was very upset. But what was his response? He came to his ustad separately. And he said to the ustad that I did this deliberately. I regarded, regarded it as a disgrace for me to be issued a certificate by the British government. The British government at that time... This was all the issue of that how to annihilate Islam in India, that was their main agenda. And at that time when he was still a young student in this institution, this was prior to the previous jihad that was waged in India by Sayyid Ahmad Shaheed Rahmatullah Shah Ismail Shaheed Rahmatullah these personalities, and then things were quelled, that jihad didn't succeed, they were martyred in the field of Balakot, etc. So all this history was in front of him. And how the British came and ruined the Muslims in India, whatever else happened, all this was in front of him. And this was in his heart, I will never take a certificate from this British government. Come what may. And he then said to his ustad, my aim to come and study here was that I needed the ilm. I cried the ilm for Allah Ta'ala. The ilm is not for the sake of some degree. It is not for the sake of the worldly wealth of dunya. This ilm is to please Allah Ta'ala and serve his deen. This is what I came for. The Ustad was more than pleased with this. And he said, Allah Ta'ala will be with you. You go ahead. The Ustad's endorsement was there. He didn't concern himself with what others had to say, their criticism. This was the gateway to all the wealth of dunya for him at that time. But that didn't bother him. He didn't want that. And he lived that life of austerity thereafter. That incident that we will come past, where he worked for a meager 8 rupees a month. At that time also, which was a very, very meager amount. And in that time, people realized his worth. He was being offered in Bhopal, Stitik Hassan Khan Bhopali. He was a very senior person there at that time. In his institute, he, when he realized the worth of this man, he invited him to come and be a lecturer at his institute at a salary of 500 rupees a month. Now, where's 8 rupees a month? And where's 500 rupees a month? I'm not good at all these calculations. How many percent that translates into Allah knows? Others here might be able to try, work that out. It's not 100, not 1000. How many, Allah knows best, how many hundreds of thousands of percent that translates into? He declined that. That what Khidmat is carry on, carrying on, that what he was teaching, Dalum Deoban at that time, after it was founded, this is fine for me. 
So nevertheless, this was the start of this career of Hazrat Ma Qasim Nanoti Rahmatullah and he then from this beginning of his, with this kind of uh, intelligence Allah Ta'ala had blessed him with, and together with that ilm and intelligence, this fervor of deen, and this burning desire to reach Allah Ta'ala, this complete annihilation of the self, I don't want any fame, any recognition, that certificate doesn't come, doesn't matter, Allah Ta'ala must be pleased. That fervor burning within him, this humility, this caused him to progress in deen in such a way that was rarely seen in the time. To just understand his uh, maqam and position, Hazrat Ma'ashawali Thanwi who is well known, mujaddid of the time, and was not somebody to exaggerate things. If something, in fact it was, he was so natural about things, just as a as a point, just to digress a moment, he says, I never even ever made physical khidmat of my mashayikh. Now this might sound like a shock. He says, I never ever made physical khidmat, like for example, pressing one's chef's feet or something. He says, because it just for some reason never came in my heart that I should do it. So I didn't make takalluf and do it, because that would be just like a pretense. So what was genuine, but he, the way he conducted himself with his asatida and mashayikh, and the du'as that he took from their hearts, perhaps others who made all the physical khidmat didn't take that much. Not that they didn't take. But the point is that he was such a genuine person. So why this is being mentioned is, he was not somebody to exaggerate. And he made the statement and says that people say that where can the ghazalis and razis ever be born again? So Hadim Dabullah Muhajir Makki Rahmatullah is no less than Imam Ghazali Rahmatullah And Mawana Qasim Nanuti Rahmatullah is no less than Imam Razi Rahmatullah He was somebody who had studied these deep works, all these personalities, and this was the statement that he made. Let alone, as the Thanwi Rahmatullah is saying this, the great personality to whom Hazrat Qasim Nanuti Rahmatullah took his direction in Islam and Tarbiyah, Hazrat Hadim Dadullah Muhajir Makki Rahmatullah who was a giant of the time, this is a separate discussion which happened previously, inshallah, some other time, Allah Ta'ala give tawfiq, we'll discuss this. But once he mentioned, now this is his murid, his disciple, his student, he mentioned to Ma Yaqub Nanoti Rahmatullah, another disciple of his. He said to him that people like Ma Nanoti used to exist in the past. For a long time somebody like this wasn't born. You should regard it as your honor to preserve his words and all his whatever writings and whatever he speaks to preserve it, regard that as your great good fortune. People like this haven't been born in ages. Now this is an endorsement of his sheikh. That this is the kind of personality that he was. And in taking this direction was Hadisab Rahmatullah he completely annihilated himself he had become completely uh, engrossed in whatever his sheikh and spiritual guide had to direct him in. That was it. There was no question about it. This caused him to reach heights which people and the kind of barakat that Allah had put in his effort, what he achieved in perhaps maybe days, it would take normally people years to achieve. After relentless effort what they might achieve in years in terms of the spiritual progress, 
But the kind of annihilation he had, and the kind of uh, commitment there was from him, and then from his inner spiritual capacity Allah had blessed him with, what progress he made in days, people you couldn't make in years. Nevertheless, this is some little bit of what uh, was part of his life in terms of his early studies, etc. Once, just in this regard also, his father came to complain to Hazrat Hajim Dadullah Muhajir Makir, who was his sheikh and spiritual mentor. And he said, my son is not interested in doing anything to earn for dunya, for himself. We are also quite poor and down and out. And if he does something, at least he will get that benefit out of it. He is just so engrossed in just studying and teaching and so on. Advise him to do something. In other words, now he's worried about his son's future. Everybody's worried about the future. Everybody's worried about the career of their child, and let alone the career of their son, the career of their daughter. And for that career of that daughter also, doesn't matter what uh, risks she is exposed to out there, what might happen to her iman, let alone uh, other things, what will happen to her chastity, what will happen to her haya and shame, what will happen to everything else, and the endless list of things that come up from time to time, but people are worried all about this future, no matter what happens to the future of deen, what happens to the future of akhirat, but this booth of future that we have put in front of us, in this context, in any case, this father also was concerned, so he came to the Hadim Dadullah Rahmatullahi, the Hadim Dadullah Rahmatullahi replied to him, this was somebody with tremendous basirat and insight, and this is that intelligence Allah Ta'ala puts into the person of piety. اِتَّقُوا فِرَاسَةَ الْمُؤْمِنِ فَإِنَّهُ يَنظُرُ بِنُورِ اللَّهِ Nabi Islam says, fear the intelligence of a true mu'min. Person with true iman. The person with true iman is a person who lives up to that iman. His amal, he's staying far away from sin, person of taqwa. Nabi Islam says, fear his intelligence because he sees with the nur that Allah Ta'ala endows him with. But ordinary people can't perceive, he perceives. So in any case, perhaps he saw something deeper. He replied to his father, to the father of Mahananupi Rahmatullah and said to him, you're complaining your son is not making an effort to earn. You'll see the time coming when 50 to 100 people at one time will be making his khidmat. And without earning, he'll be more wealthy than people who are earning. And the time came when the world saw it. That these words that came out of the tongue of this great personality, the world saw it. That great ulama of the time and mashaykh of the time would regard it as their great honor to have the chance to make some small khidmat. That little bit that they could manage to just get a chance to do, that was like a very big honor for them. So in any case, this was the way that he conducted himself and how he moved forward in life. Nanuti was still a young person, he was barely around 25 years of age. At that time, or just shortly thereafter, it was that period in India which was a very, very uh, difficult period. This is the time when that 1857 uprising took place. This is also a very detailed topic and a detailed subject which has been dealt with in some of the other discussions. Hazrat Muhammad in his discussion this was discussed. But nevertheless, just to very briefly go through this one portion of it, that it was during this period of this 1857 uprising, 
surprising, just a very interesting point of what sparked this uprising. A little bit of a digression. The idea is nevertheless some lessons in this. That what was this, how did this spark off? That the soldiers in the British army, those who were conscripted now in the British army, the Indian soldiers, the generals were now making them line the cartridges, bullet cartridges with animal fat. Now, find their soldiers, they must do what is required to be done. So now they must put the animal fat, but what was the way that this was handled? Now the army was made up of the Indian soldiers, they were Muslim soldiers, they were Hindu soldiers. The Muslim soldiers were specifically being given pig fat to now line the cartridges with it. And the Hindu soldiers were being given cow fat. For the English, for the British, either way they wanted to destroy religion in India. Primarily Islam. But nevertheless the Hindus also they had to rule over them. And the way to rule over people is to make them irreligious. If they are irreligious, they got no deeny fervor in their hearts, they got no concern of deen, then they will only be concerned about desires. If a person has got no fear of Allah wa ta'ala, a person is not conscious about akhirat, then he will only be conscious about his desires. This is an unwritten rule or written rule, call it whichever one, both it is. This is something spelt out in the Quran Sharif. That it is the person who has the fear of akhirat, he will withhold himself from the haram desires. So now the way to make people fall into their desires is to make them irreligious. And once they now start chasing behind their desires, then they got no concern about who's ruling over them, how they're ruling over them. As long as they can have their fun, they'll carry on. So this was the primary thing. To, one is to kill off Islam, Nauzubillah in India, and then to make the whole population irreligious. So now this caused a uprising. The soldiers rebelled against this. That we will not do this. And the Muslim soldiers rebelled. The Hindu soldiers also rebelled. Those who rebelled, they were now court-martialed. And many were executed. When this happened, the rest of the soldiers, when they heard about this, they all just suddenly there was an uprising in that whole army. And that one particular fort in Mirat, these soldiers who were there, they just, there was a mutiny and they just ran over the whole fort. They killed off every British soldier. They had arms obviously, they were soldiers and they were in the numbers. So they suddenly took over the whole fort. From there they decided we're going to now march to Delhi. So they marched to Delhi. And then they killed off so many British soldiers in Delhi. By that time the reinforcements had come. The lengthy incident, nevertheless this caused this uprising. Many Muslims had joined, people from every walk of life joined in. And as a result this whole clampdown came and this English army came with all its force finally. And as a result the ulama ikram in particular, at that time something else happened, which is actually linked to our incident. While all this uprising was happening, in this place of Thanabon, there were some landowners, two people, two brothers. Muslims, one of them had come to Saharanpur to buy one elephant. Elephants were used in those days for various things, farming and whatever else. So he came to buy an elephant. On the one hand, in Delhi, this uprising is taking place. Here this Muslim came to buy one elephant. One person who was there, he saw this person coming to buy an elephant. He went and laid a complaint with the local British authorities. 
that these people are planning to march against the British, they, they reinforcing themselves. This person came to buy an elephant. They immediately arrested him, they executed him without any investigation. When this happened, his brother came to know about it. His brother became overcome with the emotion of the situation. He was a very wealthy landowner and had a lot of uh, people working for him, etc. He put up a small army together. Now, the city didn't even, on his own accord. He put up a small army together and he armed them. And he said, the day is going to come, we're going to avenge the death of my brother. One day, one battalion of British soldiers was passing by. They were on the lookout, they got the message. So they sat in ambush and they wiped out this whole battalion. But when this happened, now the whole forces came on Thanabhavan. And the decision was that this whole place will be brought down to dust. And the last person living in this place is going to be annihilated. That is when the ulama of the place, including Azamah Qasim Nanuti Rahmatullahi, Marashid Ahmad Gangoi Rahmatullahi, because this was now a calculated uh, attempt to try and destroy Islam and Muslims in India from a long time, this was now coming to its peak in different ways. That is when they, this was another whole detail behind it, and they decided to now defend Islam and the Muslims. And in order to do this, they had to take up arms. So out of defense, they took up the arms. And then this battle took place in a place called Shamli. That is where Hazrat Hafiz Zamin Shaheed, he became martyred, he became a Shaheed. Qasim Nanuti was injured as well. Various others, but this didn't succeed in the battlefield. But as a result, everybody had to then finally disperse a warrant was sent out for his arrest and they were looking high and low for him because he was this, he spearheaded this the was the Amir but Qasim was at the forefront of it and therefore they were looking for him high and low so now when they were looking for him this warrant of arrest was put out for him so people came to tell him that this warrant of arrest is out for you it is better you go in hiding so, when a lot of people now kept on persisting on this, so he finally went away into hiding. But three days later, he came out and started walking around in public. So people said, but that warrant of arrest is still out for you. You walking around like everything is over. He said, well, you all insisted I must go into hiding. So I went into hiding. But the sunnah is, Rasulullah at the time of hijrat, he went into the cave for three days. While he was making hijrat from Makkah Mukarramah to Madinah Munawwara, Ghare Thawr, he was there in hiding for three days. So I also went for three days into hiding. I fulfilled the sunnah. Now it's fine. And that tawakkul and trust he had in Allah Ta'ala, he carried on. In this time, there were two incidents that took place. Once he was in Deoban and somehow this message got to, well, people, they were spies all over the place. So the message got to the British authorities that he has come back to the Oban. He's presently in the Oban. So they quickly rushed and came. And generally, it was just the British soldiers that would come alone. The reason was that there was a very big bounty on his head. Who would bring him dead or alive? Very big bounty. So out of the greed for this bounty, they wouldn't even bring any of the Indian soldiers. So it must be them, one of them that gets this bounty. Now they had never seen him face to face before. They didn't know him. But now in this greed they would come alone. So in any case they came. 
Nantir Alhamdulillah heard about it that they are approaching. So he quietly walked out of the house and came into the masjid, Chatta Masjid in Dioban. So in any case, they came, they came to his house. And then they searched the whole house, can't find him anywhere. Then the chief officer of that group, he came personally to the masjid. When he came to the masjid, Nantir Alhamdulillah was walking outside in the courtyard. So when he came, he officer came and he greeted him and he said that uh, do you know Qasim Nanoti, Maulana Qasim Nanoti so he took one more step as walking, I was walking, he took one more step and he said he was here just now he was here just now that person thought here just now meaning he was here in the masjid somewhere and he's no more here but he thought maybe this person is just pulling the wool over my eyes so he went away inside the masjid but it says the whole masjid, he came out, Maulana is still standing there he finally is muttering to himself and saying, it seems that these people are sending us on a wild goose chase. They just gave us false information. He's not here anyway in Deoban. And he went past him and went away. Now when this happened in Deoban, and he was almost, so to say, arrested and got saved. So his brother-in-law, Maulana Nihal Ahmad Sahib, he came and he insisted, look, please don't stay here now. You come away to my place. There was another place in India, Chakra, another village. So please, so quietly he somehow moved him and he took him away there. Few days later, somehow that message, again somebody spied it out, they somehow spotted him somewhere, and the message came that he is here in this town. So again they came, as they were approaching, they started surrounding the whole village. So this message came into the village that the army is here, they're going to come to house to house to search. Now his brother-in-law is very, very uh, bodied also, and then he is extremely concerned that one is going to get arrested, then what's going to be the condition, what will be the position with him, and then he can't seem to take it that if this ever happens in my house, how will I live with the shame that out of my house Hazrat got arrested, that I couldn't protect him, I couldn't take care of this. So now when Hazrat is seeing this on him, he said to him, look, you're going to carry on like this, you'll give the game up. So you can't seem to handle this easily, you go inside the house quietly and look after yourself, I will go outside the house and look after myself. So in any case, he came outside the house. So as he came outside the house, oh, he was still in the house, and suddenly there was a knock on the door. So he went and opened the door. He opened the door, there's a soldier standing there. So he greeted him and said, that, what brings you to my house? So he says, uh, do you know Mauna Qasim Nanoti? So he says, yes, I know him. He says, uh, I want to check the house if he's here. He says, very well, welcome. He called him in, and now he's taking him on a tour of the whole house to show him room for room. Each room he's opening the door for him. You can go inside, look inside here too. Then the next room. Then he searched the whole down. Those days India was a standard practice. The homes would be built like that. That there was one section which used to be called Mardana. Mardana, a male section of the house. And this would be exclusively occupied by the males generally of the house. Because... Every male is not a mahram to every female. So in the mardana would be all the males generally. And then there would be another separate section called the zanana, meaning the, the female section of the house. So there the men, anyone and everyone won't go. It's only those who are mahrams will go. Because it's not that mixing and intermingling etc. is out of the question obviously. So that was a standard thing to maintain this parda. So after he checked up, he said, well, he must be hiding in the female section. So he said, okay, all the women would make parda on side. You can come and check that as well. So that was arranged and he took him through the whole place. 
Now, and he is so calm and so composed and like as if there's nothing in the world that he took him room to room, saw the whole house. Finally, again, this fellow mumbled to himself something that again they just led us on a just futile chase again, and it seemed like he's nowhere around in these places, and he left. But this was the extent of tawakkul in Allah Tabarak wa Taala. At the same time, this was the extent of his that yaqeen within him and that courage and strength in him. That imagine staring in the face of such great danger. Eye to eye. But one bit of it can't be seen on him. You cannot make out a slightest iota that this man is the person. And one of the reasons that despite looking for him, seeing him face to face, one was okay, they never knew him in terms of they didn't see him. But the issue was that they were looking for somebody with a certain picture they had in their mind. That an alim of such great caliber who is the, and he was a very young person still. In fact, when he passed away, he passed away at the age of 49. And the legacy that he left behind, sometimes people in centuries may not be able to achieve a fraction of it. In any case, one of the things was, they had this picture in their mind that a person of this caliber, such a great personality, and who is the leader of the Muslims of India, he would have a certain stature about him, and he would be perhaps dressed in this particular manner with a big jubba and this kind of awe he would have in terms of uh, his dressing and appearance in a very, very smart and elegant manner. Uh, his manner of his dressing and so on was so simple that if a person didn't know him, he might mistake him for one of the villages. One of the general villages, how that person would be dressed, etc. That is what somebody would mistake him for. One day he was going out of Deoband, he was walking out, uh, or rather he was coming back from somewhere, he was coming back into the residential area, and one person who was, these, whatever little menial work they used to do, cotton weaving, cotton weaving is regarded as a very, very menial, was regarded at that time, Jolaha, very menial task. Like a person, if he was called a jolaha, somebody wanted to abuse someone, sway him actually. Then one of the sway words was jolaha. Whereas nothing to sway about, as a halal living people earned, but he was regarded as such a inferior thing, such a menial thing, it became like a sway word. Now that person, one jolaha was coming from the opposite direction. He didn't know who was coming. As he's walking past, he asks Nanpi what is the price of the cotton today? He thought he is also one of our kinds. He thought he is also one of the Jolahas. And he's perhaps coming already from the market, so he might have already seen what the prices are today, what's a marking, uh, uh, what's a rate going on. So just in, like how a person sees somebody of his own trade, he wants to know now what's a rand dollar exchange carrying on and so on. It's still falling endlessly, what's going on. So, like that he just asked, how much the cotton today? Can you imagine he's asking personality of this caliber? Nanatirahmatullah just asked, answers to him, I didn't go to the market today. He didn't cough and clear his throat to say, you know who you're speaking to. And I'm the muhaddis of the time, nothing. All he said is, 
I didn't go to the market today. So in other words, I don't know the price because I didn't go to the market. That person just brushed it aside and carried on. But this was the simple manner in which he dressed and how he lived that these British officers in their wildest imagination couldn't imagine that this perhaps is the person we're looking for. So that is why they had no doubt that uh, it must be somebody else. Together with how he conducted himself in such a calm manner, such a composed manner. Nevertheless, this is the way that uh, he was saved from many of the potential issues that could have come up at that time. Then, just to take things further, in fact, there are many things, but we will skip some of these things, just to get to some of his khidmat and his services to deen. One was this great service of deen, which was the Darulum Deoban that he founded, together with Maharashid Ahmad Gangoi Rahmatullahi. It was his vision, his insight, that after the uh, efforts against the British who were trying to annihilate Islam and Muslims in India, after that didn't succeed on the battlefield. And after whatever transpired subsequent to those uprisings, where hundreds of thousands of ulama were massacred, and the Muslims that were massacred, about 50,000 ulama were massacred in Delhi alone. There wasn't one tree which is written by an English historian that from a 800 kilometer stretch from Delhi to Chandi Chowk to, to Agra, perhaps there wasn't one tree upon which an alim wasn't hanged. And all the unspeakable atrocities that took place as a result of which that the structures of deen were all now collapsing. Nanuti Rahmatullahi was one of the key people that at that time saw the way forward was to establish these madaris. And they founded Darulum Deoban. That too is a lengthy history behind it. And then together with that, this was not the only place. He then traveled far and wide throughout India and set up many, many other smaller madaris which were then affiliated to Darulum Deoban and they would then train students up to a certain point and then send them for their further studies to Darulum Deoban. And in this way, in a short time, the services of deen that were now collapsing because of the number of ulama that were martyred, all that started coming alive again, because of this production that was now coming out of Darulum Deoban. So this was one of the very, very great khidmat. When he was still a young child, he had once seen a dream. And the dream was that he is sitting on top of the Kaaba Sharif. And from this point that he is sitting, there are streams and rivers running in different directions. And now he was still a young boy at that time, and he sees his dream. One very great personality of that time interpreted the dream, that it appears that this child is one day going to grow up to be somebody great, and knowledge will spread from him throughout the world. And this interpretation became a reality, that that Darulum that was set up, and, and how it started off with one Ustad, one student, under a pomegranate tree. One Ustad, one student, under a pomegranate tree. There was no budget, there was no buildings, there was no nothing. There was just the fervor of imparting deen, learning deen, and safeguarding deen. It was the spirit and fervor of deen. Nothing else. There were no big fancy budgets, there was no meetings of what kind of buildings to put up. The work started first, 
the work made everything else happen. So in any case, this is this humble beginning that it started off, and then throughout the world, this ilm spread, and if one has to count the number of students studying in the various makatib, madaris, throughout the world, that are affiliated and are linked eventually to Dalum Yoban, and this is where their roots lie, it will run into many millions. It will run into many, many millions. So this is this interpretation, and this is one of the great khidmat that he founded and preserved, and he, through his barakat, mashallah, and the others that were present at that time, it flourished. So this was one of the very big things that happened from him. The other thing was, at that time, he established one, we can call it an academy of Ihyao Sunnah, of bringing the Sunnah alive. Now, bringing the Sunnah alive, this was something that he did out of his fervor of love of the Sunnah. Out of his fervor of love for Rasulullah his love for the city of Rasulullah There's one incident of his life when he went for Hajj. And in those days the travel was very different, the roads were different. It was in the late part of the night as they were approaching Madinah Munawara. And the last, maybe latter half of the night, and they were several kilometers out of Madinah Munawara. But from that distance, some flickering lights of Madina Munawara or something in the distance, far distance, was just noticed. So it became obvious now that we are not far off, we are close by. It was still many kilometers away, several kilometers away. But as soon as he realized this, he immediately jumped out of that, whatever they were riding, whatever animals they were riding on or something, and he removed his shoes. The roads weren't the tarred roads of today. It was the untarred roads, and there were sharp stones all over the place. But he was so engrossed in this fervor of love of Rasulullah This is the, I'm approaching the Mubarak city of my Rasulullah and it's possible that his Mubarak feet could have walked on this piece of earth. He couldn't bear to be wearing his shoes and walking. This is not a masla. This is not a fatwa, it's not a masla. This was his ardent love. Others saw him and they decided to also do the same. They barely could continue for a short while because they already were getting so badly injured they couldn't carry on in this way anymore. But he didn't stop and it was for the whole rest of that journey up to Madinah Manovara he walked bare feet. And for his entire stay in Madinah Manovara he couldn't bring himself to ever put his shoes on walking in the streets of Madinah Manovara out of this ardent love. This was his zeal for the sunnah of Rasulullah his love for Nabi his love for the city of Madinah Munawara when the name of Mubarak name of Rasulullah would be taken in his presence physically something would happen to him the color on his face would start changing sometimes he would start trembling he would become like a different person altogether just that awe of hearing the Mubarak name of Rasulullah so it was part of the same zeal that he established this or started off this effort of bringing the sunnah alive. Because it is this uh, barakat of sunnah really that will bring things, make things good for us in dunya also, bring us closer to Allah wa ta'ala and pave the way for easy travel in the akhirat as well. 
Allah Ta'ala has already spelled this out in the Quran Sharif. قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُونِ If you claim to love Allah Ta'ala, Nabi Islam is being told, declare to them, فَاتَّبِعُونِ Follow me. Follow the sunnah of Rasulullah Wasallam. How much Allah Ta'ala loves this? Just one example. That a person performs salah, but when he performed that salah, he made wudu before that salah obviously, he didn't use the miswak. So he'll get rewarded for his salah. But the miswak which is a sunnah of Rasulullah Wasallam. Allah Ta'ala loves the acts of Rasulullah so much that if you use the miswak, Allah Ta'ala says, I'll give you 70 times more reward because you followed the way of my Habib So this is the way, Ittiba'i Sunnat. And all these great personalities, if you look into their lives, this ardent love for Rasulullah and the love for his Mubarak Sunnah and emulating his Mubarak Sunnah, this was very deep in their lives. They lived for this. So in any case, this effort was now started to bring the sunnah alive in people. Bring the way of Rasulullah alive. Bring his deen alive. In India at that time, there were two, among many others, two very major issues on a social level. In, on, in social society, there were two major issues, major problems, which had actually come from the Hindu customs. One was that in the Hindu custom, if a person dies, then his widow, it is not possible that she can ever marry. It's the worst crime she can commit, she can never marry. They have something which that time they used to practice, perhaps Allah knows best whether it's now outlawed, but uh, they used to call it sati, that when the husband used to die, so now they would burn that, cremate the body. So those days they would have that whole pyre, light that fire on that and that body would be on top of it. At some point of while that body is burning, that widow was expected to jump in there and burn with her husband. That person died, she must burn alive with him. Because after he has died, her living is of no use. So a widow marrying was taboo. Now this Hindu custom came away to the Muslims. Unfortunately this is this assimilation. When we live with people of other cultures and we don't guard our Islamic identity, we don't protect the culture of the Sunnah, we don't protect the culture of Islam, then all other kind of things creep in. In India, the Hindu customs creeped in. We living alongside the Western cultures, let us look in our lives. How much of the Western lifestyle has creeped in? Look at our weddings. How much of it has creeped in? How much of it has creeped in? In fact, we sometimes have to ask ourselves, how much is left of our own things? Is there anything we haven't taken from theirs? Is there anything we have safeguarded of ours? Besides perhaps the nikah that takes place in the masjid sometimes. That too sometimes. In many, many circles, that too is sometimes. So in any case, when this assimilation happens and these cultures start now eroding things, so in any case, these things came into the Muslim society as well. And this became such a common thing that no widow would dare even could entertain the thought of remarrying. Muslim widow, she would never entertain the thought of remarrying. If any person wanted to marry, he would never ever think about even making a choice that consider some widow, she's mashallah, a pious woman, or whatever the case is, impossible. In this time, one senior alim of the time, he had come around, he was giving some talks and discourses, so he was in one area and he was giving a discourse of deen and in the process he touched on this topic. 
he barely just started mentioning it. Rasulullah besides one of his wives, the rest were all previously married, some of them were widows, etc. He barely just mentioned this and he was still coming to the topic of that this is a Hindu thing, it's not in, nothing to do with Islam. Imagine in this a discourse of deen is taking place, a senior alim is talking, one person from the son of a very wealthy businessman of the town, he wakes up, he wakes up and he comes walking quickly to that alim that's giving the talk, and he holds him by the hand and says, Mawlana Baskaro Abi, Baskaro, stop, stop right there. In other words, we can't bear to hear this talk. And the whole gathering just sort of, didn't say anything, but in silence supported what this person was saying. This is how deeply this was in, rooted into the hearts of people. Ma Qasim Nanoti Rahmatullah when he saw this in his discourses, he started bringing this up repeatedly and explaining every now and again. Initially it was like when this topic would be touched on, it was like something like a bomb is going to explode or something, but he would repeatedly bring it and repeatedly keep emphasizing, because this was not just merely a practice issue. One is as a practice, find some widow didn't get married. Whatever her reason is, she didn't get married, fine, up to her. Perhaps it just didn't, she didn't want to get married again, up to her. Not something first that she must get married again. But now this had crossed that, that line. It had come past and crossed the line of Aqidah. That it was now being regarded as taboo. It was regarded like a crime. Being regarded as if it's a sin. That is not something that's now tolerable. Because now we are distorting deen. So this had to be corrected. So therefore he would keep talking about it, keep emphasizing it. In our times, like our mashayikh, this is something that they openly state. That in this time and age, obviously there are certain specific situations, each person knows his own specific circumstances. But on a general note, they don't encourage second nikah. That people can't manage this, they can't handle it, they can't fulfill the rights correctly. So they don't encourage it. But if some, at the same time, Say, don't ever entertain any kind of negativity towards it. That this is something wrong in itself. Don't encourage it. Because people can't handle it. But what Shariat has made halal, don't regard it as haram. Because that has gone to another level now. That's a very dangerous point. So in any case, this had to be corrected. So now, he was talking about it. Once he was going to give a talk in some place, and as was his it was known that this is going to be coming in some way in the talk, he would bring this up somewhere. One person had planned to, in some way, humiliate him during the talk. Because this was now something people didn't want to hear about. Somehow perceived this beforehand. Some say that this already happened, this person stood up in the midst of the talk and he asked the question. I told him, just wait, I'm going to come this I just need to rush somewhere. I'll come back and continue, everybody remains seated there. What question he asked, or he wanted to ask, actually, Hazrat Nanuti Rahmatullah's elderly sister, she was a widow as well, and she wasn't married, she didn't remarry. This person was going to make this an issue. And he was going to ask about this, that you going around talking the whole world, that uh, widows, it's not haram for them to remarry, and they shouldn't be stopped from remarrying, and so on. What about your own sister? Now somebody is elderly, past that age of considering marriage, etc. Obviously this doesn't apply in that... But Narodhi Rahmatullah sensed this. He came to his sister and he sat at her feet. 
And in India those days, a person puts his turban on somebody's feet, this is now the extent of humility that he can bring himself to. And he said to her that, look, I've come to ask you for something. I have come to ask you that please accept this somebody, a certain pious person. I want to get your nikah done with him. So she said, my nikah, I am an elderly person. I don't have any need for nikah now. And I've passed this age. Said, I know that you don't have any such need. I'm not asking you for that also. But if you accept this, and he pleaded with her, if you accept this, you will become the means of bringing the aqidah correct. And you'll bring a great sunnah alive also. After persuading her, she accepted. So in any case, he arranged whatever was necessary and that nikah took place. This person who got married to her also was an elderly person. He somehow spoke to him, got him married. Look, doesn't matter whatever the situation is, whether you don't really need to get married. But for the sake of bringing this sunnah alive, I'm encouraging you all, both were happy about it, they accepted, fine, nikah took place. Now he came to give the talk. While giving the talk, this person stood up. And this is exactly the point he then raised, which was not yet mentioned, but perceived it already. When he brought it up, the replied to him and said, he said that, what about your widowed sister that is not married? So that smiled at him and said, she is not not married, she is married. Said, what do you mean she is married? She is not the witnesses to her nikah present in this gathering. So those who were the witnesses who had been present in that nikah when it took place, they stood up. They said, we were witnesses, we were present in that nikah, we testifying to it. But this now shocked the whole crowd. That to this extent he put, so to say, his izzat on the line in that terms, in the terms of that society, that opened the doors, in a short time thereafter, approximately 70 widows nikah took place. And he would encourage this, that a widow situation is very different. Somebody is still a young person, she has her situations, whatever other situations might be, as a human being, she has her needs as well. What will become the outcome? There will be fitna there after that. So, this opened the doors, and what had become entrenched in that society, this now opened the doors to people doing the right thing, and that uh, wrong notion was now broken. This was one of the very great things that he did. Another great thing that happened at that time, also in society, this was like a standard practice, which also came from the Hindus. In the Hindu society, when a person dies, the females don't inherit anything. All the inheritance, the son will take, other males, however it will come, but the females, nothing for them, no inheritance. Yes, nowadays now, people in their wills also will write something here, there and everywhere, but as far as Hindu custom is concerned, and Hindu culture is concerned, there is no inheritance for females. That same deviated thing and the same Hindu culture was adopted by the Muslims. And when people would pass away, then the daughters, sisters, there would be no thought about even giving them their share of inheritance. Others would use up it. So in one particular place, the Jalalabad of that time, this was a very common custom. Hazrat went around and he started announcing to everybody, it is haram to purchase any land in this place. Because all the inheritance that has been distributed was not distributed correctly. There are shares of the female heirs in all these lands which they didn't get. So this is going to be sold to somebody else. One of the owners is somebody's 
daughter, somebody's sister, somebody's wife, who didn't get her share, and her consent is not there, so to purchase something without the owner's consent is not valid. Now when this, he went around making this open announcement, people were really now shaken by this, and it opened their eyes, and he would repeatedly bring this up, up in these discourses as well, in time then this also changed, and people started taking note of the importance of distributing this inheritance. These were among the major khidmat and major services that he uh, did, which brought around Deen alive, it brought this many, brought an end to many of these Hindu customs, and in this way, these very, very important things were corrected. Time is already running out. Just to briefly go through some of, just a few points, another five, ten minutes. Just some incidents in his life, there's so much about his life, but just two or three incidents that will just give us some idea about the caliber of the person, his qualities, his attitudes, his akhlaq, his taqwa. Just on the note of his taqwa, in the early days he had even taken up a job in one printing press. In fact, the printing press was owned by a friend of his, some Munshi Mumtaz. It was his printing press and he used to print kitabs and he had asked Mona to come and work in the press to read up the manuscripts, proofread the manuscripts. Now they were old manuscripts of Islamic literature, so to proofread it because that was a very, very uh, intense job. It was something that required great expertise, not anybody's task. Mona came, he accepted that. Uh, this job in inverted commas was more a khidmat than a service. It was at the same time he was earning that eight rupees. And there was no real restrictions from this owner of this printing press. They were friends to start off with. He was more than elated. It was more like an honor for him that Mona would even be present there with him. That he is there in this little place of his. It was more of an honor for him than anything else. So there wasn't any kind of sort of uh, time restrictions or anything. But this is a lesson and this is a very, very great lesson. Mona would, whatever the time was, agreed on in principle that okay from certain time to certain time I'll come so sometimes if he couldn't make it on that time he would make note of it today three minutes late for example whatever time he was not there he made note of it at the end of the month he totaled it up and then whatever that amounted to for example now whatever say per minute the rate is so many rupees per minute whatever the case is or so many Lano's best rupees how many half cents a minute so end of the month he would calculate the total number of minutes, what was the amount that he totals up to, says this much must be deducted for my salary, I'm not entitled to it. He says, no, but don't worry about it. No, no, I wasn't here for that amount of time, this much must be deducted from my salary. I didn't work for that amount of time. This was the taqwa with which he conducted himself in that employment. That not one moment can be let to go in a way that is not accounted for and that amanat is not being discharged correctly. This was one of the aspects about his uh, taqwa. There are many, many other incidents. We discussed about his love for Rasulullah his love for the sunnah. In that time there was a kind of green colored shoe which had become very popular. It was like very comfortable. People were very fond of it. And now because this was so popular, people were so, and it had become very common. So many people would send hadiyah for him also. 
But every time one hadiya of these green shoes came to him, he would give it away to somebody else. He never wore it himself. One day that Khadim insisted, but why? So many times this hadiya came to you, but you're always passing it on to somebody else. Eventually one day, now this was not a masla. And that's why he didn't stop others from wearing it. He himself gave it to others also. But when this person persisted, he said, after all, Rasulullah resting place, on top of that is the green dome. How can I put that same green color on my feet? I can't, it's not something I can, I can do. I can't bring myself to do it. That this is the color of the gumbat khazra and I put this green color on my feet, my feet on top of it. That was his extent of, this was, this was something which was a hal, a hal, an inner condition, a spiritual condition, which is not something that is a person, everybody's job to now uh, try to make ittiba of hal, we have to make ittiba of sunnat. We come on ittiba of sunnat, that will be our mi'raj. We'll start going to make ittiba of hal, we'll fall down tomorrow. So we must just strive for ittiba of sunnat of Rasulullah This is when a person has really gone into the depth of sunnat. That brings him, then he graduates onto the level of hal, which is something that becomes a part of his natural condition. It's not something that is forced within himself. So in any case, among the things about was his ibadat, he used to be very, very engrossed in the ibadat of Allah Taala. At times up to six hours in a day used to be his time for dhikr. Six hours in, his, in a day. For us to surround six minutes and make our tasbihat becomes difficult. Six minutes becomes a very long time. Six hours in a day. And at times it would be in the summers of India, he would put on a lungi, and because of the extreme heat, now he's going to be sitting for such a long time, but the heat of that dhikr used to be such that by the time he's completed that dhikr, he would change that lungi he was wearing, that lungi had to be, it could be squeezed out, the perspiration. Like how a person has drenched the cloth in water and now he's squeezing it out. That is how it used to be squeezed out. But six hours at a time making the zikr of Allah Taala very deeply engrossed in the remembrance of Allah Taala. And his uh, other ibadat, crying at the time of tahajjud, etc., time is already passing. Among the things was his humility. One of the things of his humility was what we just discussed already. People used to invite him to come take up this post here, take up that post there, offer him 500 rupees, earning 8 rupees here. But he used to dismiss these things with the statement, people are inviting me because they think I have some excellence. I can't see any excellence in me, I'm going to accept this. And he wasn't, this wasn't something these people used to say just out of just a kalof and a pretense. They were expressing what they truly believed about themselves. Though the reality was he was a person of tremendous excellence. But there was such a degree of annihilation from within himself. That he truly believed within himself, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. And this is a very high level in tasawuf and taskiyah. And this is what the target is in all these efforts of this fana. Complete annihilation. That a person annihilates himself and then annihilates himself to such a point that he is not even conscious that he has annihilated himself. He feels nothing about himself. That's a target. So this was part of it. That was part of it that he should dress in that manner. That people would think he's one of the villages walking around. And apart from that, his humility among that ittiba of sunnat we are discussing, in that is one aspect of his humility, the aspect of 
understanding the maqam and hukuk and various things, when he would return from any journey, now he was a person who was of such great popularity and whatever, and when he's coming back from a journey, though he would come sometimes, most of the time, unannounced, but people would somehow beforehand get to know, and his normal practice was, when he would return from a journey, he would go first to the masjid, because this is the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Nabi Islam would return from a journey, he would go first to the masjid. Then he would perform, if it's Ishaq time, generally he would come back early in the morning, he would perform his Ishaq salah, it was duha time generally, the time of salatul duha, he would perform his duha salah, then he would meet whoever is there, then he would go home. Nanuti Rahmatullahi would do the same. So when he would come to the masjid, by that time, he would come perform two rakats, a lot of people would already have gathered. And they all came, they gathered to meet him now. Now while he is meeting him, suddenly his gaze will fall in the crowd that his father is already here. And he would be like embarrassed. My father came here to meet me. He would put aside everybody and rush forward and literally fall to the feet of his father. His father wasn't an alim. He would fall to the feet of his father, then he would wake up and kiss his hand and then greet him very, very humbly and then he would apologize that I didn't come first to meet you. This was the kind of humility in the midst of all this crowd. Everybody there is standing and seeing that they came to meet this great person. But this annihilation, this humility, this is that remarkable thing. And this is after all what made him what he was. Man tawada alillah rafa'ahullah. The one who truly humbles himself. Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala. I'm nobody, I'm nothing. What, what are I and me and my and I'm nobody. Those who truly from within themselves believe this. Allah Ta'ala elevates them, Allah Ta'ala gives them this maqam and this position and status. There were many, many other things in his life. Just to maybe finish off on one, one more incident about his zuhud and abstinence from the world. We understood from already one or two uh, incidents. Once he was sitting and having a haircut in the barber's place. So now he's sitting there and one person came. Now while he's, he's now, so to say, uh, restricted here now because the person is busy cutting his hair. So this person came. Now, one is that a person is well-known, very close, very informal, there's long association. It's a different thing. Now, somebody totally unknown, and he came, he came nicely, he came, greeted, maybe Mala knew him just as so-and-so also. And now he's presenting him with a gift of a whole lot of gold coins. Mala declined, no, I... Jazakallah. So now he's insisting, so Mala moved it away. Because there are some other, some etiquettes in this. It's not that you just accept anything from everybody. Hadiya is in his place, but such a, one is something small, something minor, there's no issue with that, that's something sunnah to accept, but something of this nature. So he declined it. So now this person did the wrong thing, as he was now the place probably where the haircut was taking place was a shoeless place, so he was sitting without his shoes there, his shoes was at a different point. So this person went and put those gold coins inside his shoes. Now finished off his haircut, so when he came, so he picked up his shoes, which is a practice again, the sunnah practice, to dust out the shoes before a person wears it. There could be something, some insect, whatever inside. So as he dusted out the shoes, these gold coins started falling out. Now that person was standing around somewhere on the side. Mawlana observed it, but he just dusted the shoes out, those gold coins fell out. He put on his shoes and he carried on walking. And the person who was walking alongside him, he said to him, look at this, this is how it is. The people of dunya also, the people of dunya run behind the dunya. And, but the dunya is running behind and falling at our feet. He just made a comment about it, that what is the point of running behind the dunya? What is decreed for you will come to you. 
and if it is meant for you, it will fall at your feet too. But this was his abstinence. There was no association, there was no taluk of that nature. He declined it. He didn't get attracted by all that glitter and glamour of that gold. Let that be. This is dunya. The focus was akhirat. The focus was the pleasure of Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala. All these things didn't mean anything to him. And this great personality in the very, very short life of his, 49 years of age, while he was returning from hajj, he got very ill. And despite this illness, he wouldn't complain one bit. But he became extremely ill after that. In that illness, he passed away. And this is how this great personality left this dunya. And in the short time, that legacy that he left is still very much alive throughout the world. And inshallah, Allah Ta'ala will keep it alive till Qiyamah. May Allah Ta'ala wa ta'ala give us a tawfiq that we take these lessons from these lives, the lives of these personalities, the kind of sacrifices they made, how they engrossed themselves in the service of the deen of Allah Ta'ala wa ta'ala, what kind of qualities they had. This is after all the purpose of these kind of discussions. May Allah Ta'ala inspire us as well. وَآخِرُ دَعْوَانَا عَنِ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ اللهم لك الحمد كله ولك الشكر كله اللهم لا نحصي ثناء عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك جز الله عنا نبينا محمدا صلى الله عليه وسلم بما هو أهله اللهم افتح لنا بالخير واختم لنا بالخير واجعل عواقب أمورنا بالخير بيدك الخير إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم إنا نسألك من خير ما سألك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر ما استعاذك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم وصلى الله تعالى على خير خلقه سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه المعين والحمد لله